Good evening, comrades, and welcome to episode five of the Retrospectives podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, James Sterlings. How are you going today, comrade general? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. Patrick and I actually got back from doing some shopping about 30 minutes ago. He has an engagement party tonight, so uh, he wanted to get himself a swanky new suit. It's a schnazzy navy blue suit, and I opted for a pink dress shirt, which I don't actually own, so uh, I hope it looks good. Anyway, here on the Retrospectors podcast, we aim to find out whether games of the past are worth your time to play today. We don't want to forgive old games for their bad writing, graphics, or gameplay because they just because they came out 20 years ago. We want to know how good they are standing side by side with the titles being released right now. On each episode, James or I will select an old game, we both play it to completion independently, and then save our discussion for the day of the podcast. This week, I'm choosing the game, and the game I've chosen is Red Alert 2. I have very fond memories of these games from my childhood. My dad didn't buy the more fantastical StarCraft or WarCraft games. He wanted games where you kill people with rifles or tanks. So I grew up on this style of RTS games and have dabbled in uh, most of the games in the series, and it's very distinct from other RTS games. Just a quick spoiler warning, we will be discussing everything in this game, so just be aware of that and maybe tune out if that's a problem for you. So the Red Alert games place you in an alternate timeline where the Soviet Union and the West, which is under the generic term the Allies, still exist in the present day. So the Soviet Union hasn't collapsed in 1990. The game opens with the Soviet Union launching a full-scale invasion of the United States many years before Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 completely ripped off the idea and uh, i recommend watching that cinematic today it's quite funny you play through two campaigns one where you play as the allies defending the united states before eventually launching a counter-attack and the other way you play as the soviets as they cr- try to crush the united states and eventually the entire world without getting too technical in the intro red alert 2 is a real-time strategy game where you control a base build up the base eventually build up an army and have to defeat an opposing base or army or satisfy a specific mission's objective which is usually capturing or destroying a building in certain missions you'll instead have a small squad of soldiers to attain your goal and won't get involved in the base building stuff but those two brands of gameplay are the basic thrust of what you're doing So, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, James, is how familiar are you with RTS games in a general sense? Um, It's a far more niche genre than many we've covered, even though they were really big in the 90s. So, RTS was a genre I played a lot of as a kid. Um, I played a lot of Rise of Nations, a lot of Warcraft, and a lot of Age of Mythology, although I never actually touched Age of Empires, surprisingly. I even played an RTS called Rock Raiders, which was based off a Lego set that you could buy. Um, But um, suffice it to say, most of my experience in the genre was when I was quite young. And I haven't really played one since I was maybe 17, honestly. So that's, you know, getting on a decade ago at this point. So when I was growing up, my understanding of games has developed a lot since then. So I think that going into this, I was basically coming in with a fresh perspective. Yeah, see, I kind of had a similar sort of experience. I played a lot of these RTS games when I was young, when I didn't really understand things like economies that exist. 
I then later played Warcraft 3 and Starcraft 2, particularly Starcraft 2. Even though I was always a casual, I did enjoy watching it a bit. So I developed a lot of, I guess, the fundamental understanding of economies and expanding and everything. So coming back to Red Alert 2 was, was fresh for me as well. So one of the things I wanted to ask you expanding on this idea is how you felt about the gameplay in a general sense. And I know, I know that's kind of a loaded question, but um, there are a lot of RTS mechanics that are rather specific to Red Alert, like the fact that there's no expansions or the fact that there's no teching to upgrade your units. So compared to these other RTS games, particularly StarCraft 2, which is this complex beast with multiple build orders and everything, I feel Red Alert 2 is presenting a fundamentally more simple experience. Did you feel it was more simple than those other games? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you said, there are promotions for units in this game, but they're, they're like levels. So when you kill things, your units level up, but there's no decisions to make. There's no armories to upgrade. Like in Warcraft 3, you upgrade your armor and your weapons and your units get stronger in a general sense. There's no tech trees to research. You just kind of build your bases and then it unlocks units for you to build from it. And in a general sense, I kind of felt that I followed a single build path the entire game, which usually led like my base itself and then a generator and then two refineries followed by barracks and then the war factory. And I did that almost every single mission. I don't quite agree with you saying there's no expansion in this game. Uh, I did expand to some new locations a couple of times, but in general, I would agree that this game is very turtly almost compared to a lot of other strategy games I've played. You can kind of just wall up your base and cover it in turrets and then just kind of sit there forever until you can plow through the entire map. Or at least that was my experience. Um, I did play through the game on normal. I don't know if it's different on hard. You played through some of the game on hard. Was it very different for you? No, and I mean, part of this is a thing that's fundamental to RTS games of this era, which is that they didn't do anything very complicated with most of the missions. If you played through a StarCraft II mission, you'll have a mission where there's a fire wave ripping through the planet or you'll need to be fighting the enemy for control of a resource. In uh, Red Alert 2, you build a base, your opponent builds a base, they send waves of attackers at you, you defend against those attacks, and then you build up an army big enough to crush them. And that was most of the play pattern. In regards to the expanding specifically, I found that it was more economical just to purchase lots of miners so after building the war factory i'd build four to five additional resource gathering units and i wouldn't i wouldn't extend they they just increasingly roam further and further from the base collecting minerals yeah i generally did that i found that building a second refinery at the start got you a bit of a kickstart in your economy rather than waiting to get the war factory completed and then get a second miner out mm -hmm. usually when i only made one refinery i felt very squeezed on resources when I was trying to expand my workforce. In the last mission of the game, you start on a little island. So this game has two campaigns, essentially, because it has two factions, the Allied Forces and the Soviets. I'm referring to the last mission of the Soviet campaign. You start your mission off on a little island with limited resources, and I had to expand to get to more minerals across the water. 
Yeah, so even on hard, every single mission except for one where you have to build a base to defend your forces, that's what I did. I uh, built up defenses. I built a lot of tanks, and I mean a lot of tanks. This game doesn't have unit caps, so you can just no, keep doesn't. building tanks. <laughs> so I bought a lot of tanks, and then I eventually sent them over to use superior force to kill my enemies. There was one mission, Red Revolution, which is the penultimate Soviet mi mission where you need to destroy a key structure where that did not work for me at all. Uh, the enemy forces they were sending at me were too strong. I did eventually build some airships and I sent them on a basic suicide mission to destroy this structure, but I lost that mission about 10 times trying yeah. to defend my base from the overwhelming uh, waves of soldiers. Yeah, even on normal, I actually ended up having to look up some basic strategy for that mission because I just couldn't beat it. Uh, in the end, essentially all I did was build a couple of airships but have them hover outside my base, because if units passed under them, they automatically bomb. So they kind of, like, acted as wave defense towers, and then just built, like, a million heavy towers. Both factions have a big tower that almost insta-kills every enemy in the game. Uh, the Soviets have these really big Tesla coils that shoot electricity, and the Allies have big prism towers that shoot, like, beams of light. So what I did was I just turtled behind, like, 12 towers and you know, eventually created a missile silo and nuked the enemy base like three times. Yeah, so my basic feel is that most of these missions are, I wouldn't say they're poor, it's just there's a certain repetitive element to them and they're not particularly creative in, uh, in how you approach them. It's the same thing every time, it's survive, build up a big army, go kill them. But that probably only counts for about half of the missions because there's another half of the missions where you don't build a base. Instead, you start with a small squad of specialist soldiers and you have to accomplish an objective. And I think far and away, these are the strongest missions of the game and I enjoyed them a lot. Yeah, I, I completely agree. The best missions of this game, and honestly, I don't even think that's just limited to Red Alert 2. I think that missions that generally fall out of the basic RTS structure are usually the most fun missions in RTS games, honestly. So I know the mission that Patrick is especially excited about involves a mission where you start with three mind control units. So the Soviet faction in this game is actually quite fantastical almost. This game's aesthetic, it's really just if you took American propaganda during the World War and turned it into a game. So the Soviets have a lot of really funny units, and one of these is the psychics that can kind of mind control one unit at a time. So you start the mission with three of these characters, and the enemy has a very heavily fortified base, and there are some smaller ones on the outside of the perimeter, and you basically need, it's almost like a puzzle, you need to go through the level trying to figure out which units to mind control at the right time in order to get these bases, in order to get more reinforcements, and eventually crack through the enemy's fortifications, and then the ultimate goal of the mission is to mind control the President of the United States. So um, the name of the mission is The Fox and the Hound, and I'd spoken to James about this previously because I remembered it from, you know, when I was a kid, it being like one of my favourite missions ever. Funnily enough, when I, when I came to it, it wasn't as good as my memory indicated, mainly because the map seemed really tiny. But I remembered it as this big, expansive thing with hundreds of choices. That being said, it is still very good. There are a lot of options in how you uh, choose to approach this. 
For example, James, were you aware that you can get a unit called a Chrono Ivan in this mission? No, what does that do? So, so the allies have this unit called a spy, and if the spy infiltrates an enemy tech lab, you get a special, almost secret unit. In order to get a spy, you need to take over the ally barracks and an ally battle lab. Then you build a spy and you infiltrate their second battle lab and you unlock the Chrono Ivan, which is a suicide bomber that can teleport literally anywhere on the map. <laughs> oh my god, I had no yeah. idea. Essentially what I did was I found a long-range sniper unit. Mm -hmm. uh, I took him and then I had him circle the perimeter of the enemy base, taking out all of the troops from a distance, because at a certain range they don't draw enemy aggression, so you're perfectly safe doing so. And then on the north side of the base is a tiny little spot where it is not covered by the enemy's towers, so I used tanks that I stole to open up a little hole in the wall, and then had the sniper sit in that hole, taking out all of the secret service guards around the president. And then I just like ran a mind control unit down the little hole straight at him and won the mission. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of like little cool tricks. Yeah, so I actually really liked that mission. It was probably my favorite in the game, honestly. There's another mission, it's an allied mission, where you start with a squad of Navy SEALs and need to investigate the Soviets developing uh, PRISM technology. And uh, this is one I struggled with at first until I realized that if you capture their PRISM technology prototype tower and also capture an energy to power it, it turns the PRISM tower into a weapon of mass destruction, which is uh, quite hilarious. I don't remember that one, honestly. Uh, the only good infiltration mission I remember off the ally side is the one where you start with uh, Tanya. And Tanya is a secret service woman, essentially, that can one-shot kill any infantry and she can destroy buildings just by touching them. She's very strong, but she's, you know, weak to heavy tower defense kind of thing. So the and mission tanks. drops... Yeah, and tanks. So the mission drops you in with a bunch of spies... And spies are cool because spies can sneak into bases without being detected. And if you deposit them into the enemy's power generators, it shuts the power down for like a minute. So you, you bring these spies into the enemy's base, turn the power off, and then have Tanya run around blowing everything up to her heart's content. I thought that was also pretty fun. Once again, that mission also has some cool secret stuff. You can um, you can find an engineer off to the side near a crashed airplane. You can capture a war factory and just spit out tanks if you so choose. Oh my to god, I couldn't didn't find that. That would have been great. Yeah, yeah the, so... the missions have a lot of cool stuff around the edges that aren't like deal breakers. But if you're if you're willing to, I guess, explore a little, you can find some uh, some cool cool ways to uh, finish some of these missions. I think we both agree here. The missions where you don't have to build the base are the most fun, right? Yes. Although, that being said, I don't think that the game is incredibly poorly designed. No. We'll get into, we'll get into that a bit later, but for now I want to return to, um, to the story of the game. We, we've <laughs> touched on it in brief, but um, this is one of the most fantastical, cheesy, stupid stories I've ever encountered in a video game. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, the story in this game is absolutely the reason to play this game, I think. All the cutscenes are live action with really cheesy acting and voice acting. 
and all of the characters are exaggerated to hell and back. Like, this is a Allies versus Soviet story post the Cold War. I think it's in, like, 2002 or something like that. And the game is so heavily based on American propaganda. Like, all the Americans are these big, muscular dudes. The president is gorgeous. And then the Soviet characters are all, like, super sneaky and scheming. The premier of the Soviet Union is this fat, bumbling man aided by his advisor, who is this, like, psychic being who whispers all his voice lines. It's absolutely amazing. The cheesiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's very hammy, and there are a lot of comedic moments in it. Um, One of my favorite examples of the comedy is the president is broadcasting from an undisclosed location, and there's a couple of GDIs holding up posters against the flags, so no one knows where they are, except they drop the poster, and it's revealed that there's a Canadian flag there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember uh, that. It's filled with uh, silly moments like this where the game is very clearly not taking itself seriously. It embraces the caricature of both the United States and the Soviet Union, and it's all the better for it. But it's definitely almost from an American perspective, right? Like, the Soviet Union is portrayed as these almost... They have these marvels of science that are completely fantastical, like mind control tech and, like, perfect cloning technologies and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it must be. It's hard because I'm not Russian and I'm not a member of a former state of the Soviet Union, so I don't (laughs) even know how they really view themselves. All I know is that both sides are exaggerated, and that extends to the aesthetics and even the design of the units. The United States, as you said, has all of this advanced technology. There's a lot more finesse in a lot of the things they do, whereas the Soviet Union tends to be this rawly and brutally powerful. Like, the United States might have a satellite uplink, which gives them perfect intelligence. Well, the Soviet Union has nuclear power, so they don't need a... So they've got basically infinite power. And And they uh, have heaps of tanks and heaps of missiles... Yeah, the Soviet Union's tanks are stronger than the than the basic tank. They're actually significantly stronger than the basic tank. But the United States eventually gets these more powerful and more specialized tanks, and the Prism tank and the uh, Mirage tank. The what? story flows through most of the aspects of this game and influences it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, one of the things I would have liked to see in this is that I think the factions could have been more distinct from each other. Like, they're fairly distinct, and they they encourage different strategies. For example, the Soviet Union has some very good trucks that carry missiles on the back, and they have, like, a nuclear missile silo. So they encourage this really long-range style of gameplay where you siege from afar. However, as you said before, America has perfect information on the map via their radar uplink, very good scouting abilities. They have these flying units that move very quickly through the air. Whereas the Soviets are really held back in their ability to long-range siege by how difficult it is to reveal the map when playing as them. They have one very slow air unit, and they have lots of very weak ground units that get mowed down by towers easily. So a lot of the challenge when playing as them is kind of revealing the map and opening up uh, cracks in their information weakness. I found that the Soviet basic tank was so strong, and later on the Apocalypse tank, the upgraded Mammoth tank, were so strong that it didn't even matter. Like, I I would often just send hordes of them at the enemy, and eventually the Allies would fall under the power of those tanks. 
Yeah, I mean, I do agree that the factions have their own different strengths and weaknesses, but it's not like you're not playing Warcraft 3 Orcs versus Undead, and you're not playing Starcraft Zerg versus Terrans. Like, the factions really mirror each other in a lot of ways, and I thought that they could have done a better job at making them more distinct. Both units have an infantry, and the difference is one costs half as much, and you can make them faster. And then they both have dogs, they both have anti-tank units, they both have tanks, you know what I... And they both have generally the same kind of buildings until you get to the ultralight game. I, I, I agree. I, I mean, it does eventually boil down to tank versus tank. I do think one of the, one of the areas where they are distinct is the general aesthetics, like how these factions look sound and feel yeah even if in the gameplay they they do they are a lot more similar than other similar rts games yeah i agree i think the soviet barracks in particular is my favorite example of this the ally barracks just looks like two sheds attached to each other and then the soviets have these this big tall very narrow barracks structure that's just a big unit standing to sort like it's a giant statue of a unit with a building underneath it yeah the graphics in general are beautiful uh, and and that's a weird thing to say about an rts game that was released in 2000 but uh, i went and looked at other uh the other red alert games from the series and after red alert 2 there is a dramatic decline in quality as they start moving towards realism Red Alert 2 has this almost cartoony aspect to it and the characters are rendered, I would almost call it like pixel art because they're so small on your screen. The resolution is kind of low, but I felt that each unit looked very distinct and looked pretty damn good. So I would classify the game's graphics as being average. Like if I played this game today, I wasn't impeded by the way it looked it's actually very good at delivering information i always knew which unit was which what building was which uh what was attacking what it does a good job in that sense but you know coming to it coming into it today it's it's not going to blow your mind right like it's a very old game i think the graphics do their job but i wasn't particularly blown away yeah i wonder if it's my nostalgia that that's holding it up and i do, the game is quite low resolution i think i was playing it on like 1024 by 768 or whatever whatever the natural supported resolution was but that being said i do quite like the look of the units i like the tesla coil and the little electricity that's flaring around it i think the game looks really good and um i think it's better than just competent i think it's very good that's can, largely because it's more cartoony rather than realistic. Yeah, I can give you that. I would say that the graphical fidelity itself is mediocre, and then the aesthetic and the art direction and the design of the buildings and the units is very, very good. Like, I agree, uh, when you play Soviets, the power plants being these big Tesla energy balls is really cool. The giant turrets that are just Tesla coils are really good. All of the choices in what the buildings and units look like do a really good job of holding the aesthetic of the game together. Yeah, there's a lot of personality injected into the units and the buildings, even if the technical graphical side of it is a bit on the low side. You, uh, you get a real feel for the factions and their units. I do also think that it's assisted by some really good sound design and voice acting. 
And I don't want to say the voice acting is the greatest thing ever or anything, but each unit in the game sounds like it should. From the aircraft carriers, which sound like they're calling you from the bridge, to the regular riflemen. The US riflemen are very patriotic, sir, yes, sir, about it all. What, what did you think about the voice acting? Yeah, it's got that classic RTS quirk where you click your units and they say these funny dialogues. And I've always really liked that about them. Probably my favorite line is when you move the Tesla troops and they go, commencing shock therapy. (laughs) Uh, I think it's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that I think the visual design has personality, I think that those voice lines help you develop an attachment to the individual troops. They, they feel and sound like they should, and that's the greatest praise I can give to the voice actor. Yeah, like, there's a lot of attention to detail in this game. Like, the buildings aren't static. They have lots of animations. Like, everything has lots of idle animation. Everything feels really full of personality, and I really like that. It also extends to the general sound design. When you shoot a V2 or V3 rocket, I think it is, up into the air, it whooshes through the air before exploding. The Harrier jets screech in when they're dropping their missiles. Even when a building gets built, you uh, you can it makes this chunky building noise that's very satisfying. So um, I think they did an excellent job on the sound, and it really helps contribute to the general aesthetics. Yeah, it's really good for the immersion. The Tesla coils in particular, the zapping sound they make when they're frying some unit to a crisp, is that, it's great. Another thing that I think they do a really good job of, the whole aesthetic of the game is really well done, like everything just fits perfectly in my opinion, and the music is really no exception to that. One of my favourite tracks, Grinder, which is the song you hear when you open the game, is a very industrial track that does a lot of stuff to fit into the military theme, like right at the start of the soundtrack there's Morse code and there's radio chatter and there's this Soviet chanting in the background and then it goes into these like really heavy guitars and I think it's great. My favourite track in the game is definitely Hell March 2, which is the track that plays in the opening cutscene, towards the end of the opening cutscene. It's just got this fantastic Soviet horns as they invade. I also liked a song called In Deep, or at least I liked segments of it. So I wasn't as nearly as high on the music as you were, James. There were parts of most tracks that I enjoyed, but I tried listening to the soundtrack by itself and I found that most of the tracks were very subtle they're not much going on audio wise until you get to the main the main riff or the main theme and it comes in strong and maybe that's just perfectly appropriate for an RTS game where you're more focused on what you're doing but even though I remember individual riffs in songs there's not an entire song that really stands out to me apart from Hellmarch yeah so I actually mostly agree with you apart from Grinder. I think the music blends together a lot, and I don't know if that's a detriment or a positive for the game, because until I actually looked up the soundtrack listing, I thought there was only two songs in the entire (laughs) game, I'm not gonna lie. There's Um, like 20, right? Yeah, so I think they do a really good job of blending into the aesthetic, but they don't blow you away. They fit, and they're good, 
but they're nothing special. I probably wouldn't listen to them again on their own. Last week we did Castlevania, and I really like the music, and I've been listening to that on and off. Same with Banjo-Kazooie's soundtrack, but this won't be a game where I go back to it. It's great, what are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you keep <laughs> telling yourself that, mate. I still have nightmares, nightmares of the Banjo soundtrack. Um, <laughs> There was a little aside I wanted to go into, like a realization I had playing through this game. And uh, that was the importance of story in real-time strategy games in general. I'm very much in the camp where I bang on and on about this idea of moment-to-moment gameplay. But playing through Red Alert 2 made me realize how fundamentally important it is to have a narrative thread binding it all together. The thing about Red Alert 2 and I I guess other RTS games is that there is a level of abstraction there that I wasn't immediately aware of. The way armies in real life don't work is you don't build a thing called a war factory and then tanks keep pouring out of it, right? It's got no bearing on reality whatsoever. So when you are in a mission and you have to build a bunch of tanks and kill the enemy's base, it doesn't really make sense. But if you frame it in a story way, like they're launching an attack on Pearl Harbor and you need to defend it, like they do in these missions, suddenly I find the whole premise a lot more believable. I I don't know how you feel about that. It was just something I realized because for me, story almost, almost always takes second place to the gameplay. But I think the story was really essential in this game. Yeah, I think the story is absolutely the most important part of this game. Which is funny because I actually have mixed feelings about its overall impact. So if you compare this game's story to something like Warcraft 3 or Age of Mythology, those games have hero units which serve as the vessels for the characters and really drive the story. So often in their missions, you'll drive these hero units around the map and then, you know, the camera will zoom in on them and they'll discuss them. But in Red Alert 2... You have this little TV at the top right hand of the screen, which characters will occasionally pop up in. And I found it wasn't as effective at delivering the story as those other games. Even though this game was supposed to be a lot cheesier overall. And I really, I really loved the stupid story in this game. It just didn't pull me in as much. You know, when the story is kind of cheesy like this, it's really hard to get invested into it. So... While when I was watching the story, I was always enjoying myself, I never felt like when I wasn't playing the game, I wanted to come back and play the game to find out what happens next. So for me, the primary motivation to complete each mission was to see the next cutscene. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I love those cutscenes. At times, the gameplay definitely started to bore me and feel a little tedious, but the cutscenes kept me coming back. I, I will say that I didn't go through this game flawlessly. I actually died and had to restart on multiple occasions. Like, I've had aircraft carriers destroy my construction yard. I've had tanks overtake my measly defenses, and I wasn't able to recover. I definitely died in this mission. The problem was that once you do establish your defenses, it's pretty much a write-off. You're not going to lose from that point onwards. But the initial, some of the initial assaults, at least on hard mode, were pretty scary. One of the issues that I had at the start of the two-week period when I was playing this game was that because I hadn't played an RTS for a long time, 
I wasn't particularly sophisticated in my tactics and what units to build when. And honestly, I wasn't even using control groups for the first, like, three days, which was a big mistake. Dirty um, clicker. Yeah, dirty, dirty macro selector. Awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, when I started actually not being a lazy bastard, the game got a lot easier for me. But I do agree, the start of each mission is absolutely the hardest, but if you do manage to kind of bunker down and build up your defenses, then it feels impossible to lose. I yeah. did lose a lot of missions at the start, but it, the difficulty almost felt like like a Souls game almost. And I know we've brought that game up oh in almost God. every single episode, but the start is absolutely painfully hard. But then once you figure out what you're doing, it becomes a joke. Uh, and that's kind of how I felt, apart from maybe the last missions... It was, it was really weird. The last two missions of each campaign were really hard, and then every mission leading up to that was a cakewalk if you knew what you were doing. One of the things that I think made this learning process so difficult at the beginning was how a lot of the units have this really rock-paper-scissor feeling to them, and I know this is the case in a lot of RTS games, but I think it's particularly pronounced in Red Alert 2, for example, the Allies have access to these special agents who are able to completely annihilate huge groups of ground troopers in like a couple of seconds with a single unit. And attack dogs can do the same thing. They one-hit every uh, ground unit. There are anti-tank units, things like that. There's a lot of one-hit kill units that if you line them up against the right like counter unit... Uh, you can just mop the floor with the AI. And not knowing that at the start of the game, I think, made it a bit hard for me. Like, I was running infantry into units that were just wiping the floor with them and had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, Maybe, I, I know I'm just bad, but but I think compared to a lot of other real-time strategies, this game has a lot more one-hit KO units than others. Or am I wrong? No, um, I would I would say it's not even as complicated as rock paper scissors when you come down to it. You've got tanks, and then you've got everything else. The thing is, tanks can squish infantry, and infantry don't do much damage to tanks. Yeah, so, I found that so funny. You can just like if you have vehicles, you can just run units over like they're roadkill. It's amazing. So because the tanks can run over infantry, and because infantry don't do much damage to tanks. The solution is just to build lots of tanks. Lots and lots of tanks. Tanks are better against armor. Tanks are better against buildings. Tanks don't take damage from infantry. Why would you do anything except build a lot of tanks? Some tanks so, can even hit air units. Yeah, so I, I always built up forces of tanks and went and killed the enemy. But I mean, that's kind of almost a signature aspect of uh, these early Red Alert and Command and Conquer games. So I want to take this opportunity to go into some of the aspects of Red Alert 2 that are more specific and unique to it to give you guys some, some more detail on the kind of real-time strategy game Red Alert 2 is. The first thing is when you build a base, you don't the buildings that you're building are bound to your other buildings. There's a grid that kind of spans out from your other buildings and you have to build them nearby other buildings. So you don't have things like proxy barracks or rapid expansions. You need to build near your base, and your base grows around your construction yard and other buildings. The other thing is you can only build one building at a, at a time. You don't have a unit 
builder, you have a building queue on the right-hand side of your screen. So what this means is that the, uh, the bases are fairly locked in place. Where you start is usually where you end. The other aspect that's kind of unique to Red Alert, but which has seen bits and pieces and stuff like Protoss and StarCraft 2 is the energy system. You need to build power plants or Tesla reactors to power a lot of your buildings, which means that you keep having to build them as you gradually tech up. But it does open the interesting strategical option to target these of your enemy because they're pretty weak. So if you destroy your enemy's energy reactors, they are, a lot of their buildings would go off. Did you use that at all during this? Yeah, I, that was absolutely... So basically, when I invade an enemy base, my priorities go as follows. I first target their worker units, which are usually quite far from the base, to stop them producing as many troops. I usually use long-range tactics. So I target their towers next, if I can, to get rid of their outer defenses. And then I just start going straight for the reactors. Because if you kill enough of them, the base just like collapses in on itself. Yeah, it was really important for me on the very final allied mission where they begin the game with multiple super weapons. Because if you take out all of their power sources, super weapons all get shut down. So after defending the ways of attacks, I used my teleporting chrono troopers to destroy all their power plants, and then their attack was completely crippled, and I could finally build up a force to take out the Kremlin. Oh, I've got a good story for you. So the final allied mission I found particularly difficult. I probably found that the hardest of any mission I did in the game, and so I ended up having to look up some strategy for it. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you beat that mission? How did you kill the black guard that was guarding the Kremlin? So basically, I used my you get a you get a new unit, Chrono Trooper, which can teleport anywhere on the map and can phase one unit out of time completely. So I took out all of their nuclear power plants to depower everything down, and then I Chronosphered over a few squads of units and and killed them. Yeah, so the Chronosphere is the main kind of hook of the mission. You have this big facility that every I don't know ten minutes or so. Five, allows five, five minutes yeah allows you to target a circle on the ground uh, and then any units in that circle that you've selected will get teleported to the next place you click uh, anywhere on the map there's no limit in the range so you can just stack up a bunch of tanks in a circle and then just teleport them directly into the enemy's base uh, which is the tactic that the game expects you to use right so that's yep. not how i beat the mission um and this this, to be fair, this was following some strategy that I read online. So, did you know that you can teleport enemy units? No, I had no idea. So, to win the mission, there's a bunch of tanks surrounding the Kremlin, and you have to destroy them, right? So what I did was I teleported the enemy's tanks into a river, which insta-killed them. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty cool. And I, and I think that a lot of the missions have these, like, alternate strategies that you can employ like the spy unit for example is really cool the spy that infiltrates bases you can shut down enemies power you can steal technology if you take over an opponent's war factory or uh, barracks it gives all your units veterancy when you produce them there's a lot of potentially cool things that you can do that are unfortunately kind of overridden by the fact that building a bunch of tanks is generally the best strategy yeah, I absolutely never found almost any of these fun strategies. 
Like, I found some hidden buildings on the corners of the map. That, that, that was about it. I really wasn't incentivized to explore the map very much anyway. Like, you just, you just build your big units and you just plow into the enemy team and you win. I feel that the difference between playing this game in a single... Well, even for every RTS, right? Playing the game in a single-player setting versus playing it with another person is going to be completely different. And we really can't talk for the multiplayer experience of this game, but the single-player yeah. was very bread and butter. I agree. And, I mean, obviously the multiplayer experience will be completely different, but I can say for a fact that Red Alert 2's build orders are going to be way simpler than anything in StarCraft 2. In StarCraft 2, you have all these different paths to go along, all these different priorities for tech. In Red Alert 2, you're following the same tech tree every single game. You build a power plant, then a barracks, and a refinery, then a war factory, then a battle lab. Because you don't upgrade your units and because units don't get any additional abilities or anything like this, it means that the game is fundamentally similar and samey. And that doesn't mean you can't have an enjoyable multiplayer experience. Um, Counter-Strike is very similar and samey, but it does mean that the strategical options available to you are way, way more limited than similar RTSs. Yeah, I completely agree. The complexity here is much smaller than other games so maybe if you haven't played rts for quite a while then you know it's a good entry point it's quite simple uh, i can see that definitely although the start might be a bit rough unless you do unless you bother with some of the fundamental things unlike me <laughs> one of the last things i wanted to discuss was this is quite an old pc game and the general consensus online is that it's quite a pain in the ass to get this running on modern Windows machines. For me and Patrick, I know Patrick struggled to get the game working for, I don't know, maybe like half an hour, 40 minutes until he found a solution. And then he sent me his solution because we anticipated that I would have issues. Patrick's solution didn't work for me at all, and I spent like... So I work in software, I'm pretty technically minded. It took me like an hour to get this running on my machine, which, you know, isn't a deal breaker, but I think it's something to keep in mind. Although, even once it was running on both of my machines, and this is this is a consistent theme that I've seen online, you cannot alt-tab in this game. <laughs> so a couple of times I got a Facebook message and, you know, instinctively pressed alt-tab in the middle of a mission and lost all my progress because it just crashes. I think, unfortunately, this is something we're going to have to get somewhat used to as we look into these old games from PC from PCs in the 90s. As James said, it's not a deal breaker. It is annoying, but if you guys want to check out Red Alert 2, it is something you should be aware of. It's not anything ridiculously complicated. There's no registry edits involved or anything, but you will need to do some troubleshooting. Yeah, absolutely. But I will say that I hope that Patrick stops picking these buggy-ass games. <laughs> Very unlikely. I grew up with a PC, so yeah. we're going to be playing some PC games. from. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not on the levels of Prince of Persia, but uh, it's a little <laughs> annoying. <laughs> yeah, and it's worth noting that when the game actually starts running, everything works. The, the game isn't super buggy or anything it's it's just the initial startup process can be a bit yeah, tricky absolutely once you're in the game and once it's working i didn't have any issues just don't alt tab i did that lot as well and until i learned not to there were some graphical bugs where if you leave a window up on the monitor you're playing the game sometimes it flickers into focus and then disappears i don't know if you saw that but that happened no. to me but it was whatever so 
Does Red Alert 2 hold up to your childhood experiences, Patrick? So the game felt a bit smaller than when I remembered. My recommendation for this game is specifically for people who aren't super into RTS games right now. And I know that's kind of specific, but the thing is, if you come to this game as a veteran of StarCraft 2, or if you come to this game as an expert Warcraft 3 player, Red Alert 2 is going to seem very pedestrian too. It'll look good, but it will feel very, very dull actually playing the game. I think this is a perfect entry-level RTS. It's not super difficult. You can build up a base. You're not under any pressure in most of the missions. And once you've got your defenses up, you can take your time building as many tanks as you want. In addition to that, the single-player missions I think are fun, like uh, using your Tesla troopers to power up the Eiffel Tower and turn it into a death machine. I would recommend this game to anyone who is not an RTS veteran. I think it's a fantastic entry. I mostly agree with you there. I think that the main reason to play this game is its cheesy story and the cutscenes. And I would say that if you're not a big fan of RTS, then I think it's absolutely worth at least googling these cutscenes on YouTube and watching them. They're so funny. But I think if you're not interested in a really cheesy Allies versus Soviet story, then I'd probably give this game a pass. I did enjoy my time with it overall, but I have a hard time suggesting you play it over other titles if you don't have an interest in that cheesy story. At the very least, make sure you watch the introductory uh, cutscene. Favourite quote from it is, I don't give a wooden nickel about your legacy. Who writes this stuff? (laughs) So that about wraps it up for today. I'd like to put out a call to action to you guys. I would love it if anyone who's enjoying this podcast would follow us on Twitter. One of the things that we want to do moving forward is do more community engagement. So we want to do stuff like posting the game ahead of time so you guys have an opportunity to play the game with us, essentially. And then you can listen to our review after you yourselves have played it. We would like to do polls asking you what games you'd like us to see in the future. The problem at the moment is we have, I don't know, about 15 Twitter followers. So it's hard to reach out to you guys to find out what you want to see from us in the future. So if you're enjoying the cast and you'd like to be more engaged with what the show is doing, we'd love if you would follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at RetPodcast. So at R-E-T podcast, and we can engage you in the conversation. Yeah, or Um, you can follow us on our website. Go to rspodcast.net, and you can access all our social media from there as well. But um, until two weeks' time, where we'll be doing our next game, we would like to say goodbye. But before we do, James, what game are we doing next? So, finally, this week, we're going to be playing a good game. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be playing a game that I've never played before, but have always wanted to. And it is going to be F-Zero-GX, a GameCube game about going very, very fast. Well, i got to say I'm sceptical about how enjoyable it is going round and round, but I did enjoy the Nintendo 64 pod racer back in the day. So I've got an open mind and I'm willing to give it a shot. So thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you again in two weeks. Later. Later.